This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is off today. Well, as you heard in Bob News, Bob's news, there may be a glimmer of hope for a return to the bargaining table for Ontario's education workers. At the same time, debate continues in the Ontario legislature on the Ford PC's proposed legislation to impose a contract on the province's education workers and ban their planned strike. What do you think about this move by the education minister? What do you see as the compromise to get the workers an acceptable deal? Or do you feel what's being offered already is acceptable? Numbers to call 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-744-740. Let's be honest. The whole situation is a bit of a mess as workers prepare to hold a day of protest across the province on Friday. That's going to force the closure of a lot of schools in Ontario, not to mention, at least at the moment, it marks the end of collective bargaining for the workers, this imposed legislation once it passes. But can this legislation be avoided if union negotiators revise down their deal, which apparently Laura Walton is willing to at least consider? And now... The Recovering Politicians Panel. We will take all of this to our recovering politicians. Charles Souza is a former Ontario Liberal Finance Minister. Lisa Raitt, a former Federal Deputy Conservative Leader. And Howard Hampton, a former Ontario NDP Leader. Hello, panel. Hi, Charles, uh, since you are the one most recently to have served at the Ontario Legislature, I'll ask you, what do you make of what's happened? Well, the use of the notwithstanding clause is unprecedented. I mean, it's um, rarely obviously used, but depriving workers of some of their rights, uh, I think, is pretty severe. Um, certainly when, I mean, and Lisa Ray can attest to this, having been Minister of Labor herself when she was in federal side, and um, you know, a negotiated agreement is the best agreement. And they're both they're both being somewhat reckless, I have to say. And uh, I, I do worry about the kids and the people going to school, and we have to be gentle because it's a very delicate balance and it's being upset right now, um, both by QP in terms of some of what they're trying to do and bait the government, but also the government trying to use a big stick, which uh, is going to cause ramifications throughout the system. I like that description, reckless by both sides. Uh, Lisa, would you like to augment those comments? I agree with, I mean, Charles and I were actually, I think, Charles, we were. Were, you, were you labor minister? We were labor ministers together, actually, at one point in time. But uh, listen, I agree with Charles on this one. I think that it is in a situation where we're seeing the big cannons come out on on this um, on this event, and the government is showing how far they'll go. But if I could add a little bit of a flavor, I didn't realize that Prime Minister Trudeau had weighed in, and I yes. would just give him one message, but out. This is none of your concern. This is a provincial matter that notwithstanding clause, no matter how much you like it or don't like it, it was actually a precondition to getting the Constitution repatriated and the charter coming into place. It's there for the purpose of being utilized. If you don't like it and you want to change the Constitution, well, good luck with that, buddy, because it's going to be a hard climb to have that done. But to have a justice minister look at ways to intervene, I'm, I'm absolutely shocked. If that's his talking point, uh, he's got better things he should be focusing on today than this dispute in Ontario. Interesting. Howard Hampton, your initial thoughts on the developments? Well, I, I think it's very unwise of the Prime Minister of Canada to try to play politics with this. And I think that's uh, what he's doing. Uh, and using it to try to distract uh, from some of his own troubles, neither of which I think are going to work well for him and, and may create an even more difficult situation. Um, it this is unprecedented. I mean, it, it, this goes much wider than the current collective bargaining process between education workers and the government. 
this uh, literally strikes at some of the historic compromises that have been made uh, between governments and the labor movement going back uh, over a half a century. Um, I mean, this is the equivalent, and I don't want to overstate this. This is the equivalent of saying, "Oh, we'll use it. We'll use a tactical nuclear bomb here," because what it says, and it says this not just to education workers, but to healthcare workers, uh, broader public sector workers, uh, large, and also to private sector unions. If we don't like, uh, you know, if, if we don't like you, we will drop the bomb on you. And so it, it's not just a it's not just a tactic that will speak to those education workers. It will speak to the larger education community, including the universities and the colleges. It, it, it's a threat to public sector workers generally, and to very progressive unions in the private sector, like the steel workers or UFCW or, or Unifor. It sends a message to them too: if we don't like you, we'll just wipe out your rights. So uh, this is a this is a huge escalation of something that really should be bargained, you know, at the table, and and that's what is really needed here is some bargaining. And and uh, you you heard you know Fred Hahn, who's you know the head of QP in Ontario, say, as a union we can't bargain with ourselves, and the government really hasn't bargained, nor have they been willing to sit down and and. Uh, Look at uh, you know issues like having this go to an arbitrator. They're simply saying uh, we're going to drop the bomb on you, and but, that yeah. that is that is uh, really fundamental to how working people in this not just in this province but in this country and probably in North America have tried to work with governments and with business over the last 80 years. But the irony of all this, Howard, is that up until Sunday, they were both sides involved in mediated talks. Yes, and governments and, and, and unions have to take a strike vote. You, you have to, at a certain point, you have to say, we need to test where our members are. What are our members saying? And, and that, again, is part of bargaining. All right, to say to the government, look, our members are really upset. They're some of the lowest paid people in Ontario, not just the lowest paid people in education, not just the lowest paid people in the public sector. They're some of the lowest paid people in Ontario, and they have some of the hardest jobs. And we will talk about what their jobs are worth in terms of financial compensation. But Charles, over to you. I mean, taking a strike vote is all part of the process. But was it prudent for the government to call a full-on strike five days out rather than continuing with the collective bargaining process? The government or QP? QP, I'm sorry, uh, yeah. yes. So, yeah, it, see, that, they're all using their arsenal and they're using what's available to them to try to force the hand. Um, I mean, Howard makes reference to the lowest uh, paid uh, workers in this in this predicament. It's not the teachers, right? But there is a leapfrog effect that's going to take place, and the government's trying to take precautions as to how to manage ongoing negotiations thereafter. So QP is obviously trying to force this piece so that they can get uh, a, a reasonable increase in wage, and, and they deserve it. I mean, to this point, inflation, other matters, everyone is, is angling for more money. It's a question of how much. Mm-hmm. And the deviation is just so strong, so wide, uh, they can't find a, a, a meeting of the minds. But neither side should be uh, implementing both our nuclear right. reactions. Right. Uh, Lisa, it's true, yeah. right? I mean, they both pulled out uh, the, the last straw tactic uh, rather than letting the process go on. And I mean, Stephen Lecce said today that the government is reacting to the fact that they called a full-on strike while bargaining continued. But they've both basically gone for the gusto instead of, you know, oftentimes, as you know, unions will say, we'll do a work to rule first. Uh, take- it's so true. Yeah. yeah, you're you're bang on, Jane, and I agree completely with the analysis that both uh, Howard and Charles have laid out. I think one strategic, and I wouldn't call it an error, but maybe a, a misjudgment is the fact that usually what happens when the union says, "Look, we're going to go on strike on this certain date," you you get back to the table, you try to get a negotiation going to make sure that at midnight you prevent that strike from happening because parents will be mad at the government for allowing it to happen. 
I think the world is different now. And I think the government is picking up on the fact that the general public with kids in schools aren't aren't really going to blame the government. And there are two things where in an inflation, things cost a lot more. People are looking for more money. But overall, they just want their kids in school. So they are actually okay. I think they're okay with the government coming in heavy-handed. And, they're, and the government has calculated we're not going to get punished at the, at the ballot box. And when you have such low voter turnout in all of our elections, including what we just saw in the municipal elections, it's not a bad gamble for, for majority governments to figure that these kinds of tools that they have, which normally we wouldn't think about using, suddenly they're, they're right there for them to use because they're not going to get punished, punished by the electorate. Well, if you think about it in terms of strategy, Lisa, it, it has left the union with no other option. I mean, they, they are planning this day of protest Friday, but they have no other option but to, to pick up the phone and say, listen, uh, we're going to, we're going to concede a little bit. I don't even think they can go on strike on, on, they, they can do it. They, they'll try to do everything but a work stoppage on Friday because the penalties are real and they're yeah. significant. They and are. it's great to rattle the sword or the saber, but my gosh, that you can't put individuals in those personal circumstances where they can be fined personally. It's just, that's not fair to your work. No, $4,000 a day for an individual. That's a tenth of yeah. their salary, a lot of them. Exactly. That's so it's, yeah, it's go a ahead. shame, but, it, and they're both, Howard and Charles are right, this sets the scene. I don't know whether or not this kind of tactic will be used in the healthcare sector. I think that, that to the public is a little bit more sensitive. But on the teaching side of it, I think they have heard loud and clear from parents that this is the route they want to go. I want to talk with our panel about what these educations are worth in terms of financial compensation. But our Zoomer radio listeners also want to get in on this conversation. Lisa Raitt, Howard Hampton, Charles Souza, our recovering politicians panel. Jane for Libby on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. Numbers to call 416-360-0740 or toll-free one. 866-744-740. Let's go to PT in Woodbridge. What would you like to add? I, I, it's not that I'd like to ask. I would just like to leave a comment. Throughout the years, the teachers have really gotten what they wanted. I admire them. They do a good job. But after what we have gone through in the last three, four years, between the parents trying to teach children, between COVID, between inflation, I think they should ease off. Everybody wants a piece of the pie. Everybody wants to get as much as they can. And they keep saying it's for the students, it's for the kids. Reality, everybody is looking after themselves. So it's the teachers of what they want. I have issues on trying to make ends meet just like they do. Do you see me going on strike every time my bill goes up? So you know what? Let's give these politicians a chance, and I agree with Stephen Lecce. I think he's doing a good job. You know what? Back off a little bit. Give a little, and you'll receive a little. Do not use the children as hostages. They keep saying the children, the children. No, it's their own things that they want. That's all I want to say. Thank you. And you know what? I don't even have, I only have grandchildren that are in school, but I've gone through this for 40 years. I have also been in union for 50 years. It's give and take. So unions, give up a little so that our kids don't suffer. All right. Thank you for your call. Let's go to Daryl in Toronto. Daryl, what's on your mind about all of this? Hi. I got about four really quick questions I want to ask, and then you'll decide how you want to deal with them. Number one, what's the consequences for defying a notwithstanding order? And I'm not talking about fines or anything like that. I mean, this has never been to a court before to hold up or anything like that. Number two, do the feds not have access to a notwithstanding clause also, which if a provincial government is basically stating they're going to abuse the charter rights of their citizens, is it not the the feds uh, place to actually step in there too and use their notwithstanding clause if that's the case. Number three, um, is it not basically slave labor to force people to work without a contract? And number four, I think that the government is the one using the parents, especially after the, the, uh, pandemic and everything like that to try and, you know, play them when against the teachers when, you know, essentially you're talking about their concerns of daycare centers for their kids over six years old. 
Okay. All right. Good questions, Daryl. Uh, it's Howard Hampton's turn. So I'll put some of that to you, Howard, uh, for your reaction. Well, first, I just want to clarify one thing. This is not about the teachers. No, it is not. This it's is the not education about workers. The teachers. Yep. This is about the uh, people in our schools who work with children with special needs. Some of those children are children who have special physical needs, disabilities. Some are children with developmental issues. Some are children with behavior issues. These are the hardest jobs uh, in the school. And if these people aren't there, classrooms do not function. They just don't function. These are also the people that keep the school clean to make sure that it is a safe and sanitary place for your kids. These are also the teacher, the, the people who answer the phone and get back to parents and talk to parents and deal with parents' issues. These are, these are people who are far less, their, their pay is so much less than, than, than teachers. Yes, it is. All right. So, you know, it might serve the government's uh, interest to be talking about teachers all the time. To do that is just completely false and misleading. These are the lowest paid people in the, in the education system. And in many cases, uh, they, uh, they are, if you look at sort of the scale in the community, they are some of the lowest paid people in your community. Now, Howard. And they have uh, some of the hardest work. The, the, the second point is yeah. the notwithstanding clause would clearly go to the superior courts, probably to the Supreme Court of Canada as a number of other attempts by governments to interfere with uh, collective bargaining rights have gone to the Supreme Court of Canada. And it would be very interesting to see how that would, what would happen there. Uh, can the federal government overrule? No, the province has its jurisdiction. Education is clearly within the provincial uh, jurisdiction. The federal government could intervene in a court case. And the federal government could, could in, in a court case, and I think this would be headed to the courts, intervene and say, this is not what this notwithstanding clause was intended for. This is a trampling on not just the rights of these workers, but this is a trampling on some rights that are pretty fundamental to all Canadians. So they could intervene, but they can't overrule. Again, uh, you know, is, is this akin to slave labor? Well, no, I, I think that's a bit of hyperbole. But what you have to recognize is inflation, the latest figure I've seen, is running at uh, over 6%. What the government is offering these workers, it doesn't come anywhere near to matching inflation. So in effect, going forward, their wages would be lower than they are even now. Which, which to me is just horrendous to take the lowest paid people in our school, people who do some of the most difficult work, and say to them, Oh, yeah, we'll bargain a contract, but you're going to be paid less next year and the year after in comparison to inflation than you're getting paid now. Well, and, and if sense we, of fairness would say, yeah, well, that's not bargaining. That's like saying, oh, here, put a gun to your head and pull the trigger. So inflation at the moment, annual inflation, you're right, is 6.9%. So, Charles, what about a staggered contract so that you have 6% in the first year? We know that uh, the Bank of Canada, Tim Tiff Macklem, is trying to bring inflation down to 3% next year and then 2% the following year. Could you not do a staggered contract like that? Well, I'm sure they can negotiate what they would want or can. I mean, staggered would make sense. What also makes sense is for the very same workers that Howard is speaking about, a percentage increase is nominal compared to a percentage increase in terms of actual dollars compared to the teachers that would make a lot more money. And we did that with personal support workers here in Ontario. We actually gave them that 15% bump up in order to enable them to sort of have a living wage, so to speak, uh, in comparison to nurses and others that were getting much more money. So there has to be some afforded, some, some accommodation for those very low end who will not see the benefit of a percentage increase. They'll see a benefit of an actual dollar increase. And that's the dilemma that we're in here. And that's what QP's fighting for. But then, of course, QP's fighting for the leapfrog effect for the next step, which is the bigger wage earners. 
And this is where the government is trying to offset. Right. So, Lisa, now, when we look at these workers on an hourly basis, they're making $26 an hour. The issue here is that they're paid on a 35-hour week for 42 weeks a year, and then you get your $39,000 a year. Mm -hmm. So the issue seems to be around the hours, right? The $26 an hour, that's $11 an hour more than minimum wage. Uh, but they don't have enough work. So I, I imagine that is part of the bargaining as well. Sure. And whether or not there's um, a chance for folks to, to utilize the EI system uh, in the summer and getting their wage supplements that way, I, man, I don't know the answer to that. But I will say, Jane, that I do believe that they are going to get a deal at the end of the day. I think we'll end this with a bargain deal. And both sides will walk away saying uh, maybe not complimentary things about one another, but definitely they'll They'll find the deal that's best for them. I don't think all is lost, but what I think what has happened is the government has sent a very clear message of how they're going to be dealing with any such uh, negotiations in the education sector moving forward. As I said, I don't think it's going to necessarily um, be transported over to the to the health sector. Let's go to George in Toronto. George, what would you like to add to the conversation? Uh, I would like I would like to say a couple of things. First of all, I want to remind you guys that the Ford government, before the start of the pandemic, wanted to get rid of and downsize teachers by starting the uh, online classes. And then pandemic hit and uh, no one liked uh, the online classes. Now, all of a sudden, they are championing the cause of uh, students going back to school. I, I, I don't mind going back to school for the kids, but, but and they're asking the federal government for more money, demanding more money, and yet they cannot pay the frontline workers, the education uh, lowest paid workers. Uh, they are not willing to pay $3.25 an hour, but yet they have the audacity to uh, uh, find them $4,000. A day, Where yes. Is the empathy? Yeah. Thank you, George. Where is the empathy? Thank you. So mixed messages from the Ford government, Howard Hampton. Well, there's, there's, you know, there's, there's been a series of, of mixed messages here, but I think you know, what Ford government's hoping is you know, people will forget what happened last month. You know, never mind what happened last year. I mean, to, to me, uh, you know, this is the government that initially, and the caller is correct. The government said, hey, you know, we don't need kids going to school. We, your kids can stay at home and we can, we can do all kinds of things uh, through online education. Well, I think, uh, you know, how, how hollow and empty that strategy was, was proven during the pandemic, that all kinds of uh, rural Ontario, northern Ontario, you don't have internet service that allows you to provide instruction, that all kinds of kids have difficulty learning uh, online. So, you know, I think we discovered how valuable our schools are. But if our schools are valuable, and again, these are the people who do the most difficult work in our schools. These are the people who actually look after your child especially if your child has developmental or behavior or other physical challenges, uh, to then say to these workers, you know, uh, look, if you try to bargain a decent wage at a time when inflation is running at close to 7%, we're going to drop a nuclear bomb on you. Uh, to me, you know, this is, <laughs> this is one day saying white is, is black and the next day saying black is white. You can't have it both ways. Uh, and, and, you know, the Ford government has tried that, and they hope that people have very short memories. These people deserve to be paid a decent salary. Uh, they deserve decent working conditions. Uh, and, and that's not what's being put on the table right now by, by government. Let's go to Stephen in Barrie. Uh, the phone lines are jammed, but we only have time for a couple of more calls before we get final comments from our panelists. Uh, Stephen, go ahead. Well, I have two things. 
Uh, one, uh, the government right now is offering 2.5%. And I disagree with Trudeau getting involved because I understand in Nova Scotia, when the last election, uh, before the last election, the Liberal government was there and the opposition wanted Trudeau to get involved, but they had a teacher strike and he said he didn't because it was a Liberal government. And I understand 2.5 and I agree with Hampton when he says what the increase is. Uh, for uh, for inflation. But right now, the Justin Trudeau government, I believe, is offering the federal workers, and I was a federal worker, you know, increases that's averaging 2.06% over four years. And now the, uh, you've got the provincial government offering 25 And according to Statistics Canada, the actual increase in labor talks in this year is 1.8%. Everybody else is getting roughly the same. And right. I agree that some of the workers on the uh, EAs are getting not what there should be compensated right, with. Right, right. That this is all within the same, uh, what's being ac- accepted from the federal government, and now they're getting involved in a provincial matter? Yeah, no, that is a good yeah. point, Stephen. Thank you. Uh, but, Charles, I think the issue here is not so much the annual increase. It's that these workers, uh, at least their union leaders, are making the case that they're not paid what they're actually worth for what they're doing. Yeah, and... and um and I know you're going to have to wrap it up soon, but you, you consider the fines that the union is going to be charged with, almost a half a million per day. So, like, there's got to be a more, a more reasonable outcome for these low-end workers who deserve greater pay instead of paying for all these fines. So I don't think it'll be long-lasting because it's just crazy. And, and the other thing is, in other instances, you have essential service, essential workers' mandates to enable people to be protected. And we've done that during the Ford's government, uh, when they were the mayor, I should say, Rob Ford, for TTC in Ontario, in, in Toronto. Um, they squawked, but in the end, it created a lot of harmony as we go forward. You can't do that with, the, with, with these individuals, unfortunately. Um, but it's early in the mandate. They'll take drastic measures because people will forget in two to three years. Uh, Charles, are you as optimistic as Lisa saying that uh, Lisa says she thinks there will be a deal ultimately I negotiated? I think so. I think so. I think think so there's too. a lot of grandstanding right now, and they can't afford to do that. They shouldn't, they shouldn't be yeah. spending money this way. And Howard, do you think a deal will be done at the table? Um, I, I, I hope that a deal will be done at the table, but when you engage uh, in this kind of tactic, and, and believe me, People in the health sector, the university sector, people in the broader public sector, and even workers in the, in the private sector will uh, see what this is. This, this, this move basically says, as a government, we're prepared to wipe out literally 80 years of collective bargaining. So that, this goes right back to the Depression and World War II when government stepped in and said, we have to ensure that uh, workers have some protections if we're going to be able to mobilize the economy for the war. That's what was at stake. Mm-hmm. And at that point, government said, unions have a right to bargain. Employers have a right to bargain. These are the rules for bargaining. And what, what this government, the Ford government, has said is we are prepared to literally drop a bomb on this that destroys those historic compromises that have gone, that have really been in place since about 1942. That's the message that will be delivered to the broader labor movement. And that's the risk here, that, that the broader labor movement will say, well, if you're prepared to use drop the nuclear bomb on these very low-paid workers, then it seems that none of us really uh, matter. And, and you know, we, we'll, we'll take this as a warning that you're prepared to do this anywhere and everywhere. That's the risk. And Lisa, in terms of strategy, short-term strategy, I certainly appreciate Howard's uh, philosophical thoughts about all of this, because it is. This is the history of this country and the province that he's talking about. But in in terms of getting this deal done, which you think uh, you feel optimistic about, what guidance would you give to both sides? I would say that you need to find the person on the government side, whoever's negotiating, that has an actual relationship with somebody on the union side to try to sit down quietly and see whether or not they can come up with a process to get back to the table in a meaningful way. This is where you have to rely upon personal relationships that you develop across the table. I hope there are some there because that would be the way forward. And if they don't have that, they need a mediator to try to get them back together. All right, we'll leave it there. It'll be interesting to see what's happened when we talk to you next Tuesday over these next seven days. Uh, appreciate your time as always. Good afternoon, everyone.
Bye, everyone. Lisa Raitt, former federal deputy conservative leader, Howard Hampton, former Ontario NDP leader, and Charles Souza, former Ontario liberal finance minister. Jane for Libby here on Zoomer Radio's A Fight Back. And coming up in the second half, how much are Canadians relying on food banks and what you need to know to protect yourself against the flu? That's next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Today marks the official beginning of the rollout of the flu shot in Ontario. You may receive a flu shot from a doctor or nurse practitioner, a public health clinic, or at the pharmacy. And look who's joined us in studio here at the Zoomerplex, our old friend, pharmacist John Papasturgio. Great to see you in person. Yeah, it's great to be back. It's been a while in person, right? Yes. There, we used to have our half hours uh, Thursdays at 1230 where people would call in and talk to you and others with the Ontario Pharmacists Association. Seems like a long time ago oh, now. Seems like, yeah, so much time has passed. A lot's gone on in pharmacy and it's busy as ever, right? Yeah. Well, how have you been personally? Oh, pretty good. Yeah. 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 Otherwise, you know, otherwise, well, it's just, yeah, you know, in the pharmacy world, we've taken on kind of the brunt of the pandemic yes. with, you know, testing and vaccination and just filling scripts. It's been a very, very place over the, a busy place over the last few years. Yeah, especially on the Danforth. Uh, busy locations, both yeah, of them, right? Yeah, really busy. And, you know, it's been otherwise good. I mean, I think uh, the patient, you know, patients, the community saw the value, really realized the value of the community pharmacy. Yeah. When, you know, family doctors, many of them went virtual. Everyone was too afraid to go to the uh, ER or to, you know, urgent care. They'd show up in the community pharmacy, right? And the uh, it was good. I mean, it was busy, but good. Well, and let me put that to you before we get into talking about the flu shot. How has the pandemic changed uh, pharmacy for the better or uh, maybe forced it? It was the catalyst to get it to evolve to the next level. Yeah. You know, we've been talking about expanding scope of pharmacy practice for a while, but I think the pandemic really built a lot of goodwill for pharmacists amongst the stakeholders. So we know in January, uh, minor ailment prescribing is coming. In Ontario, so you'll be able to go into a pharmacy and get prescriptions for, you know, minor self-limiting type conditions, things like cold sores. You know, you're not going to have to go to your doctor anymore, rashes, bur- minor burns, things like that. So it's exciting for us because we've been kind of trying to push the scope, uh, you know, provide more services to to people in community pharmacies because, you know, we're there, we're avail- available, pharmacists are well-trained, so we might as well access that, right? Right. Well, let's talk about this season's flu shot, how effective it is, and which variations of the flu it is designed to target. Yeah, I mean, you know, the best kind of idea we always have about how this flu season is going to go is based on what's happening in the Southern Hemisphere or what's already happened. So, you know, in Australia, they had a really, really high incidence of flu this year. And there was a number of reasons for that. But primarily, the last few years, we've been social distancing, wearing masks, you know, uh, being very, very careful. So, we didn't really have much flu circulating. Right. And then we've taken all that away. And we haven't really had any inherent immunity for the last few years because we haven't been exposed to much of it. And bam, you get like a, a really bad flu season. And if, if that's any indication of what's going to happen here, uh, they, uh, here uh, we, we should worry. And I think the point here is get vaccinated as early as possible. We're already starting to see some uh, some flu circulating, even in Ontario. Right. And people hospitalized for the flu. Absolutely. When in the last two winters, that didn't happen because of masking and distancing and all those protocols we had in place. Uh, absolutely. And I think um, you know, we opened up now to everyone. We did, we've been doing high risk patients for the last couple of weeks, but we're now, uh, you know, available to, to vaccinate anyone. And I always say that I'll wait till later. You know, patients say this all the time. Maybe I'll come in in a couple of weeks. Don't wait because it takes about two weeks for your body to kind of generate that immunity after you've been vaccinated. So it's not like you get the vaccine and you're protected immediately, right? There's some uh, time between that's required. So if you get vaccinated now, we're in November, you'd be like, you'd be in good shape for mid-November, right? Okay. And that's when we expect to see kind of the, the peak, November, December, January, you see usually an onslaught of flu. 
If you have a question for our pharmacist friend, John Papasturgio, go ahead and call in. Numbers are 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Since it has been a few years since flu uh, did its damage in Ontario and across the country, remind us of what the flu is like if you catch it. Yeah, I see. The the challenge is... It's not much different than COVID, right? And it's hard to differentiate, especially in the early, early uh, stages. So you're going to get, you know, runny nose, sore throat, sore throat, fever, malaise, weakness. The flu is different in the, than the cold in the sense that, you know, it's going to knock you on your ass. You know, uh, you're going to be bedridden. You're not, you know, with the cold, you can kind of manage if you have the common cold. But the, the flu is a lot different for most people, particularly those that have been unvaccinated. You feel really, really crummy for kind of a week, sometimes two weeks, right? Um, when you think of COVID, early on, you can't really differentiate. Generally with COVID, if it progresses, you're going to get the shortness of breath. And you don't really have that with flu unless you have underlying comorbidities, things like asthma, COPD, you know, they you could get that shortness of breath. But that's what I'm worried about this year. If we have both kind of circulating at the same time, it's going to be hard to differentiate who has one right. without the testing and everything else. Right. right? And, and of course, the difference with the flu versus COVID is that you can be asymptomatic with COVID, but you can't be asymptomatic with the flu. That's exactly right. Yeah, right. for sure. And, uh, and you know, so if we could vaccinate as many people against the flu and then get those boosters in for COVID because we're doing that right now as well. And it's very safe to do both. And we're doing that. I've, I've got people coming in who are due for their COVID booster, uh, due for their flu shot. We're doing one in each arm, sending them on their way. And it's it's very safe to do that. And we've done a ton of that already. And it's really uh, getting as many people vaccinated as early as possible. So that's really the solution, right, is the, the two-dose shopping when you go in, uh, either for your flu shot or for your COVID bivalent, then get the other one at the same time. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and we have, you know, fi- Pfizer bivalent vaccine available now as well. It, came, it came, became available a little bit later than the Moderna vaccine. But the reality is, yeah, you could get both. It's safe to do it. I know with our, you know, our senior listening audience, they're, they're always very interested in the high dose flu vaccine. And we have supply right now. So get it now because I always, you know, we wait, but we have our, some of our seniors patients, they wait, they wait, they wait. It eventually will run out, you know, and they'll say, I want the high dose. Well, we don't have it anymore. It's not the end of the world. We've got trivalent adjuvanted vaccine for seniors as well. And, and we use that as kind of a, the second option once we run out there, you know, the efficacy is not as great, but it's still very, very good. So if you go into a pharmacy and they say, we don't have high dose vaccine, I would say don't pass. Get the trivalent adjuvanted vaccine and get, you know, get vaccinated. It's more important to be vaccinated earlier than to wait and hope the vaccine becomes available. Okay, and we'll talk about the criteria around uh, being eligible for your bivalent shot in just a moment. The Zoomer Radio listeners want to chat with you, John. Uh, we'll go to Daryl. Daryl, you called in earlier, but now you've got a question regarding the flu season. Go ahead. Well, actually, as I said to them, I, I got my flu shot uh, two weeks ago tomorrow, so I'm, I'm covered with that. I had a, a more personal question about a prescription I've been given that I wanted to ask about. If you don't want to deal with it right now, I'll understand. Oh, no, that. go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Well, uh, to the pharmacist there, I've been given a prescription for something called Rosevar, R-O-S-I-V-E-R, 1% cream that I find is like $200 for a tube. And I told my doc, you know, I'm a senior on, you know, a low budget, and uh, I'm trying to find out if there's anything covered under the Ontario Drug Program. Instead of this, the pharmacy says they don't know, and I called up the dermatology center I went to, and they're telling me it's up to the pharmacy to figure it out. Yeah, I, I hate when that happens. You get bounced around a little bit. The reality is, with respect to creams, especially topical creams, the Ontario Drug Benefit Program doesn't cover a, a huge number of them and and you're 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 referring to a, a much newer kind of cream that's become recently available so unfortunately you're not going to get anything exactly like that uh covered by no, drug benefit that. $200 for a tube. Yeah, it's expensive. Yeah, for sure. And, and we see that with a lot of the brand name creams that just come out. Uh, you will see, uh, you know, high prices. Are you using it over a large area of your body? Is it a smaller area? Like, no, but how do I find out if there's anything similar? You there's know, not going to be anything similar. So we, the way it depends what you're trying to treat exactly, because that could be I'm trying to treat 
Seborrhea here. I yeah, I mean, so for, for Seborrhea, there, there are other alternatives, right? And uh, I don't know if we want to go through them all here today, but there are other cover alternatives. If you haven't tried them yet, I wouldn't go straight to the Rosevar, right? Like, uh, have you tried any steroids in the past? Have they helped any of the topical steroids? Uh, well, I have a thing called Protopic. Yeah, it, does that work? Has it tried that? Uh, it, it seems to modify it, but doesn't get rid of it. Yeah, see, so I mean, that's a good alternative as well. So, right. you know, a lot of times it's trial and error with these topicals, right? You got to yeah. try, see what works. Uh, the, long story short, here you're not going to find an exact alternative that, uh, of that that's covered. Not, nothing even really close because it is a newer agent. Try some of the other ones. Maybe try a topical steroid. See how that goes, and then and then consider the uh, the prescription if nothing else works. Okay, we don't have too much time here left, so we'll get back to the vaccines. Uh, for the bivalent vaccine, uh, the recommended amount of time from your last shot is 168 days, right? That's right. That's right. So that's what they recommend. We could do it. Uh, as early as three months, you know, and we, we have been doing that, uh, depending on patient scenarios and what's, you know, the patient-specific kind of things going on, especially if patients are traveling to parts of the world or what whatnot. So it's recommended six months. You can get it as early as three months. If it's been, you know, nine months since the last vaccine, you're you're now, I consider you under-vaccinated. You're not adequately pr- protected. And that's important because I know a lot of our patients, the last time they got vaccinated for covid was, uh, you know, longer than nine months ago. So you should start thinking of that because the newer variants, the variants that are circulating have changed. And those are kind of original, uh, you know, doses of the vaccine that you've received. They're not, not going to adequately protect you. So let's think about getting a booster. Okay, so if you want to book a flu shot, Ontario.ca slash flu. If you want to, and this is through the public health clinics, if you want to book a COVID shot, Ontario.ca slash COVID-19. When it comes to the pharmacies and walking into your shoppers yeah. on the Danforth, can you just walk in? Absolutely. So the easiest way to do it is uh, shoppersdrugmart.ca backslash flu, and you can make an appointment so your slot's secured. Uh, you can use the PC Health app as well to make an appointment, or you can walk in. Many of us take walk-ins. The challenge with the walk-ins is we give priority of the appointment, so you may have to wait a little longer. We don't turn anyone away, right? So um, if you happen to be in the store and you don't mind waiting a little bit, uh, get in line. We'll get you vaccinated. I find the rush happens right now. You're gonna, we're going to get about two weeks and everyone's coming in, and that's a good thing. So the wait times will be a, a little bit longer. If you're younger, otherwise healthy, and you want to give it two weeks and come in after two weeks, that'd be okay, too. You won't, you, the wait times won't be as long. And you can get the one, too. One, two, we'll do it at yeah. the same time. I have uh, a great story uh, when I went to my shoppers a couple of weeks ago to get my second shingle shot, and they offered me the, the flu shot at the same time, and the pharmacist said, oh, we just got them last night, but to save you another trip, I'll, I'll give you both. And that's a, a good point, Jane, around shingles vaccination, because I'm trying to take this opportunity to kind of educate people, hey, get the shingles vaccine. It's important. It's probably one of the most effective vaccines that we do have. If you're getting it at the same time, very important with shingles, get it in different arms. That is because sometimes with the shingles vaccine, you get a lot of arm swelling and whatnot. And it right. freaks people out. So I always say separate it. Don't do it in the same arm. But, you, you know, you can do shingles with anything else as well. Uh, Okay, so a final message. Uh, we do need to change topics, so I'm sorry if we didn't get to your phone calls, but final message for everybody out there. Get vaccinated as early as possible. Uh, don't let it go. We expect a pretty bad flu season. Get in your pharmacist there. We're here to help. All right, pharmacist John Papasturgio, great to see you again. See you again. Okay, this is Jane for Libby, Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. And coming up in our final segment with 40-year high inflation, more Canadians are increasing their dependency on food banks. We discuss next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. We learned last week Canadians are increasing their reliance on food banks. These are tough times. We're dealing with 40-year high inflation. 
In fact, reliance on food banks increased to an all-time high earlier this year with nearly 1.5 million visits in March. To put that in perspective, it marks a 15% increase from the amount of visits in March of 2021 and a 35% increase from March of 2019, a year before the pandemic began. Neil Hetherington is the CEO of the Daily Bread Food Bank and joins us with his insights. Nice to talk with you again, Neil. Hi, Jane. It's nice to chat with you. Unfortunately, it's a very difficult topic, though. Well, exactly. And you're you're just coming out of the Thanksgiving food drive. How did that go? It went well. Uh, We raised uh, some 35,000 pounds of food in in a single day. Uh, here at uh, and, and sorted uh, at the Daily Bread Food Bank. But, you know, before the pandemic, Daily Bread was providing 30,000 pounds of food out to the community every single day. That number now is 110,000 pounds. We have uh, gone from seeing some 60,000 clients per month to 186,000 client visits a month. It has more than tripled since you and I last spoke. Tell us about some of the stories you're hearing from people who are using the food bank who maybe were not using it before the pandemic. Well, the, uh, the, there is a changing demographic, that's for sure. Uh, we're seeing a lot of individuals. I used to say that the person who is uh, you know, making use of the food bank or individuals that you're sitting beside on, uh, on the subway or on the bus, I, I, now I'm saying more and more, they're the individuals that are across the cubicle from you in the adjacent cubicle. It's more and more uh, of the uh, working poor uh, individuals who were 11.6% inflation on food are not able to keep up with with uh, with the expenses that the city has, and you know the di- the difficulty with this is they're they're needing to rely on food charity, when in fact we know what what the real answers are to the problems that we're facing. Well, explain those for us. Well, it, it really boils down to three things. Uh, it boils down to first decent affordable housing, making sure that uh, that we get back into uh, building uh, cooperative housing, rental housing, RGI, those types of, uh, of housing are desperately needed. The second is making sure that there are income supports. So, uh, uh, you know, somebody on disability has a monthly income of about $1,200 uh, to survive on for, for the month. And uh, and the poverty line, the poverty line in Toronto is around twenty two hundred dollars, mm-hmm. and uh, and so we are legislating that if you are on income support, that you must be in poverty by by you know a dramatic number. The uh, the third is making sure that we try to reduce precarious employment. So you know if you take those three things: employment, income supports, and decent affordable housing. And, and you start to invest in those areas, then uh, I think the conversation hopefully that you and I have next will be that we have plateaued and maybe start to, to, to see a decrease in the number of people coming. But it is at, at a dire state for the food banks in the city of Toronto. Is it fair to call it a crisis? I mean, could it get much worse? Well, it's absolutely fair to call it a crisis, and and I'm really sorry, but to to say that actually it will get worse. Um, We have every forecast that we have done and that we have provided the city of Toronto shows that we will be close to a quarter million uh, visits per month by by June of next year. So um, we have... uh, no cause for optimism in the short term mm-hmm. uh, that uh, that things will change, uh, and so that that has uh, forced and inspired each of the people who volunteer and who work here at the Daily Bread Food Bank to redouble our efforts. Uh, we will feed the need, and uh, and we will continue to advocate for those systemic solutions that I was talking about earlier. Well, I guess in regards to those systemic solutions, I mean, this is not the first time you've said this out loud. I'm sure you've been consulted by various levels of government. What is your impression in terms of whether the government leaders at uh, the different levels are actually hearing your message? You know, when the pandemic started, it was a wake-up call for all of us, I think. You know, we were banging pots uh, outside, uh, uh, you know, to support essential workers and, and support food banks. And we all said, we, we got we to do something fundamentally different. We need to build back better. 
but that wake up call didn't, you know, we went back to bed. We put, we, you know, all three levels of government have, have, uh, put the snooze button, uh, in play. And, uh, and, and we need to say and go back to that resolve that we had. Um, I, I was pleased that the provincial government put, uh, uh, disability rates up by 5%. At the same time, they hadn't been adjusted since 2018 when inflation cumulatively had been, had impacted those individuals by 12%. So they were underwater by 7%. So, uh, you know, that changes, uh, to disability are, are needed. We've, we've, we've taken sort of a half step on that front. And I'm very hopeful that uh, uh, we can pressure government with the release of reports, like you mentioned earlier, uh, to, uh, to to make sure that we are living out the values we espouse as Canadians uh, in terms of how everyone is treated and uh, and begin to reduce poverty like our commitment is to reduce poverty in half by 2030. We're not on a trajectory to be able to accomplish that poverty reduction strategy. You talked about the importance of decent, affordable housing. What do you make of the new uh, provincial legislation, uh, the sweeping legislation to improve affordable housing across the province? Well, I, I'm optimistic about it. You know, uh, they they consulted uh, both with the industry as well as uh, affordable housing uh, experts, and uh, and you know are making the the right call in terms of getting it built more quickly. Some of the details I know municipalities have uh, 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 put some concern out there in terms of whether or not uh, development charges would be on affordable housing, and they've, they've got some concerns that have been relayed. And so I think as you dive into some of the policy details, um, there, there may be uh, some concerns, but I don't think we should let those minor concerns get in the way of the fact that uh, the government was recognizing and taking action to do something about the affordable housing crisis that we all face. And, uh, uh, and so we, we need to applaud movement forward. For those who are listening and thinking, oh, I, I meant to donate uh, to dailybread.ca for the Thanksgiving food drive, or, you know, I meant to get in touch to uh, help out at some point to volunteer. What do you say to those people right now? Because now you are in between drives, effectively. Well, we're... Th- 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. People can drop off food at any uh, fire hall. Uh, most grocery stores in the city, they can make a financial contribution. But here's the thing. Not everybody who's listening to this broadcast is in a position where they can donate either food or funds. And, and we get that. And, uh, and so, but everybody who is listening can make a call to their uh, counselor, maybe their new counselor, uh, to any elected official and say, today is the day to implement your poverty reduction strategy. And I've never asked you this before, Neil, in all the conversations I've had with you. For those people who are listening who need assistance, need food assistance, how do they go about getting it uh, and still making sure that they feel dignified in doing so? You know, any but there are food banks usually within walking distance of almost every area in the city of Toronto. Um, but uh, if they need any assistance, uh, calling two one one to find out the nearest food program or food uh, bank uh, to, just to get the location. They can call Daily Bread directly, and we'll let you know the operating hours. And and we set up our food banks in a way that is a sort of a shopping model. If you walk in, we ask how many people are in your family and, and we take information down and, and, and you shop based on a number of points that we give you for the food that is culturally appropriate, food that you would enjoy, uh, for health and, uh, healthy and nutritious, uh, food. So, uh, there are ways to, uh, to, to, to make sure that you get everything that, uh, that you need. And, uh, and of course, all of our hope is that we can reduce the number of people who are food insecure in uh, in the city. We'll leave it there. Neil, always a pleasure. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Jane. Have a good day. Neil Hetherington is the CEO of the Daily Bread Food Bank in Toronto. Jane for Libby. And coming up next, after Bob Comsick's news, the number one's at one with Eva D. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air. 
and The Garden Show.